Father God, you have so inspired men of old by your Spirit to write these words. And Lord, we know that these words are not just for those of ancient times, but Lord, they are for us today. We thank you that they are holy, infallible, without error, and therefore they are more than useful. They are beneficial for us this morning. So Lord, would you open our ears and our eyes to hear and to see you? Lord, would you use me, your servant, to portray Christ and him crucified? May our focus be on Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every one of us wants to save some cash, right? We've kind of been coming out of this recession time, and we, we love the idea. We've kind of been working on how do we save, how do we cut corners, how do we make sure we can get a little bit more money into the bank in case there's another bubble bursting somewhere. Well, back in 2007, UPS discovered a very unique way to cut their gasoline costs. Anybody know what it was? No, left-hand turns. They cut out left-hand turns as much as possible. Listen to this. <laughs> yes, it's true. According to the executives at the International Package Delivery Service, Service, computer mapping software and traffic modeling has led them to conclude that delivery drivers should avoid left-hand turns. By mapping out routes that aim for only right-hand turns, the company saved 3.3 million gallons of gasoline in 2007. Isn't that amazing? So some of you are going, we need to start thinking about how do we do that, right? <laughs> According to the U UPS research, drivers waste time and gas idling while waiting for left-hand turn signals. You know, I, I can think about that right out here, right? Trying to get out of church and turn left, it is ridiculous. I'm just going to save time and turn right. Even with the more circ circuitous path, the company estimates that it saved more than $9 million in 2007. Now, can you imagine who was that, that one guy who was doing all this research and he, he had to go in before all the corporate bosses and say, hey, I've got an idea about how to save money for us. We, we need to cut back. You, you tasked me with the job of trying to find ways of saving money. And he comes and says, listen, Mr. President, here's our idea. Our idea to save fuel, to save costs, is none of our drivers, none of the brown trucks are allowed to turn left. Could you imagine the look on the faces? They'd probably give a, a response like, what? Are you serious? No left-hand turns, and yet, what did it do? It worked. It worked. They, they found a way to improve their efficiency of the company. They established kind of a new rule, a new mantra, no left-hand turns. The new rule worked really well and continues to work really well. And I can imagine many of you now are going to start watching and say, oh, dude, you turned left. You're breaking the rule. But it worked really well for UPS. But unfortunately, when it comes to our spiritual growth, many people 
tried to do the same thing. They believe that there's some kind of missing formula, some kind of trick. There's, there's, there's got to be a better route, a new way that I could do my spiritual life that is going to make me grow faster. It's going to make me better. It's going to be, make me more efficient. Many of us kind of are always looking for what is that new thing to help me be better, right? And that's kind of the way that we, we are often. And I, as, a, as a pastor, I've seen it happen so many times. Well-meaning people who flock to a particular seminar, a book, a conference, a speaker in desperate search to find their spiritual missing link. And some of the resources, honestly, are just plain out lies. Others are rather helpful. But the problem is that slowly, over time, I've seen people talk more and more about a seminar, a book, a conference, a church, a speaker. And the name of Jesus is more and more noticeably absent. And the reality is that a person's trust is, is, is more on methods or the pathway or, or the, the means. You see, it's not just that they have denied Jesus. They just forgot to mention him when someone asked, what has changed your life? You're a different person. What happened? I mean, what has happened? I joined this new church. I joined this new small group. I went to this seminar. I read this amazing book. And over time, they forget about Christ. Paul was in, in a battle for the hearts and the minds of the, the church in Colossae. There, there was a growing movement in the church that was causing them to focus more on rules, human tradition, spiritual forces, and severe discipline rather than focusing on Christ. The problem was not that they denied Christ. No, they still believed that he was the son of God. The real problem was the one of focus and trust. The teachers of this improved means of spirituality were to, to use one commentator's description, spiritual They were deceiving people by creating confidence in the wrong things. And so I'm going to call this spiritual drift. Spiritual drift. A subtle departure in focus and a trust in, in what is really important or effective. Spiritual drift happens slowly, doesn't it? We see it with, with snowstorms. A drift doesn't just suddenly appear. It slowly happens with the, the wind of time. And all of a sudden, there's this drift in front of your driveway, and it's nearly impossible for you to get out of your driveway because of the slow over time drifting. It, it is a drift first for us when it comes to spiritual drifting. It's first a drift of our thinking, and then it's a, a drift of our affections, and then it finally is action. Our thinking, and then our affections, and then action. 2, 8 through 10, is a powerful, powerful reminder that people who have received Christ as their Savior are filled with the fullness of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is sufficient. You cannot 
ever improve upon Jesus. Therefore, preventing spiritual drift, a, a shift in focus and trust, comes by focusing on the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. So in our text this morning, verses 8 through 10, it gives a classical warning and solution. There's a warning that Paul says, hey, be aware of this, but let me give you a solution. It gives both of those in this section. First, it starts off with a warning, and we see this in verse 8. This section of Jesus-centered thinking begins with warning about what could happen to them if they did not remain vigilant, if they did stay focused. Subtle spiritual drift is possible, and it's very subtle, but it is dangerous nonetheless. He wants us to think about what is going on in our hearts, what is going on in my mind. He wants us to actually think about our thinking. That's something that we try to avoid often, right? Thinking about our thinking. And so how do we do this? I'm going to give you a couple ways. One, know that you could drift. Know that you could drift. Many of us think that we're impossible. It's impossible for us to, to drift away from Christ. I, I've known Jesus ever since I was a little kid. I, was, I grew up in this church. I was catechized in this church. I went through Sunday school in this church. I've known Jesus. My parents love Jesus. I'm, I'm never going to drift. I'm going to stay strong. I'm going to stay firm. Nothing's going to happen. The reality is we've got to know that you, each and every one of you, including me, could drift. And Paul gives a very strong warning in verse 8. They weren't thinking about what they were doing or the implications of these new beliefs or these methods or these new practices. They were not using discernment and they didn't realize the dangerous path that some of them... The first word in this text, in verse 8, means to look at or behold or uh, I want you to perceive something or... I want you to take heed. In the ESV, the NASB, and the NIV, they render it as see to it. See to it. It's kind of a, sounds like a kind of a task you might give. Hey, see to it that the lawn gets done. But, but the weight here, is, the Greek is far more than, hey, just pay attention. It, it, it's stronger. And it's not a bad translation, but there's a strong warning here than what those words capture. The King James and the, the New King James and the message, I, I, the message, I think, translated a little bit better. They translated as beware or watch out. Beware or watch out. And I like that better. This is a strong warning. It is a strong command. Not just, hey, see to it that it gets done, but hey, beware. Open your eyes. Look at this. See what's going on around you. Further, this is something that requires vigilance and hard work on their part. The, the tense and the voice of this suggests that they must continually and actively be on guard. It's not just a, hey, Tuesday is coming. Beware. No, but it, it's an every waking moment. As you are living your life in Christ, 
Be aware. Be vigilant about this. The danger you see is not always a direct head-on attack. No, it, it's a series of seemingly minor decisions and minor shifts that one day result in someone saying, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? And the answer would be, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking. That's the problem. A lack of vigilance from our thinking. And I think I've said this before, and I think I should just mention the problem with our thinking is we don't think about our thinking. It just happens, right? And all, all, way too often what happens, our emotions kind of run away and they kind of reaffirm, well, I thought this would happen. And then your emotions kind of get back behind that and it just kind of, you, you don't think about it. And all of a sudden you find yourself down this raging river of emotions and wrong thinking. And you're capsized ultimately. Once the mind is committed, the heart will soon follow. And when thoughts and affections grab a hold of you, it's hard work, but not impossible. But it's hard work to go back, to change your mind, to change affections. That's why the Bible frequently calls us to realize the danger of wrong thinking and wrong affections. Listen, here's just a short list. Proverbs 4, keep your heart with all vigilance from the flow from, for from it flows the springs of life. Or Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Jeremiah 17, and some of you don't believe this, but it's true. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Not your heart, right? And he goes on to say, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and the mind and test the mind. Or Matthew 15. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Out of where? The heart and the mind. Colossians 2. Set your, your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Or Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So the danger of this is that your mind and your heart will, will cause you to be taken captive. If you're not careful and you're not thinking about your thinking and you think that you cannot be spiritually drifting, What's going to happen? You're going to be taken captive. The word is used for those who have been carried off or uh, after losing a battle. And they're prisoners of war. They are the spoils or the booty of war. And that's easily what happens to us, right? We become captivated. And Paul wanted them to realize where the wrong thinking would leave. They would become captivity of error. They are going to be captives of error. And he wanted them to see what was really happening. And he wanted them to see where this could lead. So the first thing I want you to put into your mind, just kind of 
tattoo it into your head is that there is a reality of this warning. Watch out drifting thinking. Watch out for drifting thinking. Know that you can drift. You are capable to drift. And if you think you are, it's impossible, you, your heart and your mind are impenetrable from the outside, you have already bought into the lie. You can drift. Know that you are not invincible. But secondly, know the signs of drifting teaching. Know the signs. What happens next in this text is really helpful. Paul describes some of the characteristics of this drifting, this subtle drifting teaching. First, there's a new level of knowledge. A new level of knowledge. The teachers were, were offering this, the people a philosophy or a way of thinking that gave them a new or a special level of knowledge. You believe this and you have arrived. Or there's a different level, a different plane that, that you folks are on. Oh, praise be to God. You have arrived. The teaching was not necessarily godless. It wasn't necessarily immoral. That kind of error would have been easily spotted. This teaching was intellectual. <laughs> That's a danger for many of us. Intellectual. This teaching was intellectual. It was special. It was elitist and likely incorporated a, a kind of a syncretist when you're kind of a blending of secular thought and Christianity. Now, I don't want you to think that the Bible is against any kind of philosophy or good logical thinking. However, we need to be on guard when somebody discovers a new path of spirituality or knowledge that few others have. When you hear out of a seminary or out of a college that we have found a new perspective on this, or we found a new way to interpret Scripture, you need to go, mm, no. You are one of those. A new way. There, there's another uh, characteristic where there is little gospel focus. Little gospel focus. The phrase empty deceit is hard to translate, but it seems to mean that the philosophy that is to be avoided, is really an empty illusion. An illusion. It was a, a hollow sham or a void of real gospel content. Real gospel content. In other words, it seemed right at first from outward appearances. It looks really good. But later you discover the focus, the tone, and the real trust has little to do with Jesus or the gospel. And let me warn you to watch out for titles that promise to do something God's way. Be careful. I'm not saying that all books or uh, pastors or sermons or anything that talks about doing things God's way is wrong. But you got to be careful when you hear titles like marriage, God's way. Or family, God's way. Or finances, God's way. It, it may be a way prescribed in Scripture, but we've got to be careful that it's not ultimately 
hollow on the inside. The focus that was probably going on here, the focus is more about a new methodology and not upon the power of the gospel. Another characteristic that we've got to be careful of is man-made tradition. The third and most telling characteristic here is, is just this focus on man-made structures, man-made ideas, man-made methodologies. First Peter uh, 1 verse 18 uses the word to translate here as human tradition. To mean the, the feudal re religion tradition that they have bought into. Mark 7 verse 8 uses the word to describe how the Pharisees of that day left the commandment of God to the tradition of men. The problem here was that these teachers took their ideas, their models, their forms, their methodologies, and presented them on par with Christ. Now, it's not that models or methods or methodologies are necessarily bad, but we need to keep them in their right place. We need to watch out that our focus doesn't drift from Christ to these forms, that these forms are really important. The problem is not necessarily a theological one. Sometimes it is. It is a pragmatic one, practical one. What do you point people to? What do you talk about? What do you think really works? What are you passionate about? Confession, I love reading the Puritans. And some of you are going, who are the Puritans? Maybe we need to put some of the Puritans in your hands more often. But the Puritans, uh, there's a time, space in history that just really loved the supremacy and the power of God. And these, I love their passion. I love their clarity. I love the way they, they turn over truth over and over and over and over until they get everything out of it. They chew and chew and chew until it all just kind of comes out. And they've enjoyed every last morsel. My life has been significantly impacted by their writings, and I've been greatly helped spiritually by them. One of my favorite ones is a guy by the name of John Owen. If you could get your hands on a guy named John Owen, read John Owen. Anyway, but I would be guilty of man-made tradition if my love for the Puritans or John Owen begins to uh, be projected as the primary means by which people are helped or changed. I, I should watch out if I start to become known as Puritan-centered and not Jesus-centered. This is one, there's one thing to point someone towards a helpful book that helps them to, to know more about Jesus. And another thing to say or think, man, you have got to read John Owen on mortification of sin or they'll never be set free. Do you see the subtle shift? You've got to read John Owen to be set free. And here's the reality. Every one of us have a John Owen kind of thing. We have sacred cows. Put up, put up the definition of sacred cows. A sacred cow 
is an idea, a custom, an institution held, especially unreasonably, to be above criticism. All have sacred cows that wander around in our spiritual life that do not touch that cow. It is sacred. It is holy. Tom Rayner uh, discussed sacred cows in one of his, his blog posts. He told about an experience where he, he had that he had in a church a number of years ago. He did an assessment of the church's door-to-door outreach ministry. And he estimated that the church members had invested nearly 1,500 hours in this ministry over the past 12 months. 1,500 hours. At best, two families had joined the church as a result of this amazing effort. Tom approached a key church leader and suggested that maybe they try something different. And Tom wrote about this man's response. This church leader, he raised his voice almost to a scream. We've always done it that way. Have you ever heard that? We've always done it that way. And 10 years ago, we saw dozens of people become Christians through this ministry every year. We are not about to change. And when I asked him what we should do about the 1,500s, apparently, 50, about the 1,500 hours of apparently fruit ministry, he said we should try to increase the number to 3,000 hours. Traditions of men. It become, our, our eyes become focused on an activity, a methodology, not on Christ. They might, they might be good. They might, be, might have been helpful. And so what are some of our sacred cows? Celebrate recovery? Mops? Bible study fellowship? BSF? What about men's ministry? Women's ministry? Counseling? Cadets? Gems? Those of you who have no clue what those are? Those were sacred cows in my, we don't do away with those kind of young boy kind of clubs or young girl, Awanas. They become sacred cows. So my challenge is for all of us to use creative means that lead people to Christ, right? But to watch out for man-made models that talk about helping people change without talking much about Jesus. Here's another characteristic, spiritualizing things. This text says, according to the elemental spirits of the world or elemental, elemental principles of the world. Most likely, the characteristic here is linked to Galatians chapter 4, where the people were observing this a Jewish sacred calendar and defining observance of those things as something that real Christians do this. Real Christians do this and real Christians do that because it has handed, been handed down to them by angels. The, Galatians pro, the Galatian problem was and, was and spiritualizing part of the law. That's what they were doing. They were spiritualizing it. The, the, Galatian, the Colossian problem was probably similar with the spiritualizing of certain kinds of food, and drink, and festivals, and vision worship of angels 
and particular regulations, spiritualizing them. They spiritualized these things and made them more than what they should have been. Perhaps these things were helpful to some. They were good to some. Maybe some major leaders endorsed them. Well, if they endorse it, we should buy into it. Maybe they were part of, a, of their spiritual heritage. We've always done this. We don't know. However, what is clear that these things were spiritualized beyond what they should have been. These things became the core to them. Here's the last thing. Absence of Christ. Characteristic is there was a total absence of Christ. There's one characteristic that is very clear for all of this. The focus does not seem to be on Jesus Christ. That is why it was called empty. Empty. It is the gospel that is the power of God. It is not a program that is the power of God. It's not a man who preaches that has the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. It's not a counselor that has the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Hear that. The power of God is found in the gospel. It is Jesus who is the glory of this ministry. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. We must be aware that the absence of Jesus leads to the presence of error. We must be aware, must be sure that we are continually focusing on Jesus as we are ministering to people through creative means, through our gifts and our talents, the skills that God has given us, that we are not focusing on all these exterior things, but we are focusing on Christ or else it will be empty. And it'll lead to the presence of error. We have to ignite a passion for people to follow Jesus. Not us. So in your counseling, in your building friendships, man, don't let them follow you. There, there's a strange thing that Paul says is, follow me as I follow Christ. Ultimately, the goal is, for, come along with me. I, I want you to follow, follow, follow along with me as we follow Christ together. That's the goal. And that's part of discipleship. But if it becomes, hey, do what I do. There's where your error is. We must be vigilant in our thinking lest we have spiritual confidence in other things, including ourselves. So the issue here is not one of denial. It is one of confidence. Don't put hope in a method. Don't put hope in a treatment. Don't put hope in a plan. Don't put hope in a formula. Put your hope in the gospel according to Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is going to be found. In a biography of a, of a guy named George Whitfield, another one of those guys that I think that you should really, dead guys that you should really read, George Whitfield. Write him down, and it looks like Whitefield. Whitfield, 
I read his biography and I found a really good example of this. There was a time in the ministry of John and Charles Wesley that people were especially moved by their preaching ministry. They were so moved by their preaching ministry that strange and controversial physical reactions were taking place amongst the hearers. And what were some of those strange and controversial kind of reactions? People were just crying. They were wailing. They were convulsing. And there were fits that were taking place in the midst of, of, of the preaching. And Charles Wesley came to see these kind of strange and unusual behaviors as a manifestation of God's blessing. And some were, hear me say this, some were genuinely a product of the Spirit's work. However, Charles' ministry started to drift. When believing the, quote, believing the emotional experiences to signify the special approval of God, he desired the demonstrations, even more so, and encouraged them among his people. I want to see more crying. I want to see more of this. I want to see more of this coming out of you as I'm preaching. And when the signs were absent, what did he do? He would pray, Lord, where are thy tokens and signs? The ministry did a subtle shift to, I need these things as opposed to Christ. So George Whitfield wrote to Charles to express his concern about his, his emphasis. And, and Whitfield, I want you to hear, he affirms that, the, that signs are from God and that his concern is about the substance of the people's trust, not about the signs themselves. So he's concerned about the substance. He says this, I cannot think it right in you to give so much encouragement to those convulsions which people have been thrown into under your ministry. That there is something of God in it, I doubt not. But the devil, I believe, does interpose. He goes on to say, I think it will take people away from the written word and make them depend on visions, convulsions, etc., more than on the promises and precepts of the gospel. We need to think about our thinking. We need to be on guard and mindful of the, the potential in our own hearts to drift away from the primary focus on Jesus and the life-changing power of the gospel. So that's the warning part, right? But then Paul in verses 9 and 10 gives a solution. The solution is focus on Jesus. It sounds simplistic, but for many of us, it's, it's much easier to place our trust and our confidence in other things rather than to focus simply on Jesus. I, I'd rather to see some byproducts and put trust in byproducts and methodologies than to actually just trust on Jesus. So Paul gives a clear and rather obvious answer. Listen, all you need to do is focus on Jesus. And let me give you two clear ways in verses 9 and 10 how to do, how to do the focusing on Jesus. Well, the first is, I want you to focus on 
who he is. Focus on who he is. Paul takes us back to another reminder of who Jesus is. He pulls our attention away from these these shallow and man-made methodologies and solutions offered by these spiritual confidence tricksters. And he says, in him, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The emphasis is on him. It's utterly foolish to put one's confidence in these other man-made methods because it is Christ who is the fullness of God in bodily form. In other words, the fullness of God rests upon Jesus. And the teachers of error were just kind of purporting this deeper knowledge of God and, and a new way to know their creator. And Paul reminds all of us that Jesus is the personal revelation of the Father, fully disclosing to us what God is like. If you know me, you will know the Father. Knowing Jesus helps us to know the Father. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know God. This means even more. It's not just that Jesus revealed or demonstrated God-like qualities. The nuance of the word deity means that the entire fullness of the deity dwells within Christ. Is the full expression of the He is the essential and adequate image of God. The fullness, the wholeness of God is within and is Christ. That is why I'm comfortable saying that I am a follower of Jesus because in him the fullness of the deity, the fullness of God dwells. He is the very essence, the very everything of God. Again, we see the centrality of Jesus and the gospel expressed in this book. And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that he wants to know nothing, nothing among the church except Christ and him crucified. The reason that Jesus-centeredness is important is because there is no power apart from him and his work. There's no power apart from Christ and his work. We have to keep connecting people back to Christ. Not to our programs. Women's ministry, men's ministry, children's ministry, worship ministry, preaching ministry. Our our responsibility is to keep connecting people to Christ. That's our goal. You see, Jesus-centered thinking is more more than just knowing that you are saved. It means that you know, believe, think, and teach that there's no power in anyone else but in Jesus Christ. The New Testament and the Old Testament all point to him. And therefore, we have to constantly ask ourselves how any passage connects us to the redemptive plan of Jesus. Every spiritual road in the Old Testament and New Testament has led ultimately to Jesus. Brian Chappell is uh, 
extremely gifted writer, extremely gifted pastor. And he wrote a book called Christ-Centered Preaching. And he calls something in there the deadly bees. These are well Sunday school lessons, well-meaning counseling sessions, well-meaning sermons, well-meaning Bible studies, and the focus is on the, fo- on the following. Be like so-and-so. Be good. Be disciplined. The problem, use, especially using Old Testament stories and character studies, is that you can sound expositional and you can sound even biblical while missing Jesus totally. You can tell kids down the children's ministry to be like David when he's fighting Goliath and not connect the story to God's redemptive plan in Jesus. You can call adults to have good marriages and even give them four biblical keys to marriages that will flourish but neglect the heart of the message of the Bible. You can call people to be more disciplined while neglecting the power of Christ to make it actually work. Faithful exposition, faithful teaching not only teaches the text, it teaches the text in context to how it connects to redemption. It takes us back to who Jesus is. Every application that I may give to you from this music stand pulpit should be one that connects you not to just more activity, but it connects you deeper to Christ. Every application in a women's or men's Bible study should be one not just like, oh, that's more knowledge or more more stuff for me to do or I could be like this character or this person. No, it is connecting you ultimately more and more to Christ and his redemptive, restorative work in your life. That is the goal. So first, there's a question of who is he? But lastly, who are you in him? It's critical. The first point is about content. The second one is about position. Paul reminds us that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority, and you have been filled in him. You have been filled in him. So Colossians 2 is filled with these phrases that focus on Christ in this way. In chapter 2, verse 6, walk in him. 2 verse 7, rooted and built up in him. 2 verse 10, filled in him. 2 verse 11, in him you were circumcised. In 2 verse 12, buried with him in baptism. 2 verse 12, raised with him. 2 verse 13, made alive together with him. Jesus is full of deity and you are connected to him. And you are full of his fullness. In Christ, you are complete. This means that people who never come to faith in Christ are absolutely incomplete. 
they're incomplete. But when you repent of your sins and you turn to Christ uh, as your sacrifice, as the one who has died to save you, you are complete. You are whole. You are reconciled to God. You are complete in Christ. You are fully forgiven. God, grace has taken over your life. God has declared there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, any obedience, any obedience that comes out of your life flows from the bedrock of God's complete pleasure over you because of Christ. Beloved friends, we, we've, got to, we've got to think this way. We've got to think this way. We need to see who Jesus is and we need to see who we are in him. That's what you need to focus on. Who The world is telling me all these things. My mind is telling me all these things. I'm a liar. I'm a loser. I'm a this. I'm a that. I'm a, I'm a scoundrel. The worst of the worst. But who am I in him? Who am I in him? We approach studying the Bible prayer times and evangelist giving and any serving that we do as an expression of Christ in you. The hope of glory. We've got to stop separating Jesus from the church. We've got to stop living around him and to live, learn how to live by him. We've got to see real life change, spiritual maturity come from knowing him. Christianity is personal. It's personal. It's about Jesus. So friends, don't drift from him. Don't drift from him. This past summer, our family took the best family vacation ever. Ten days, we went away to where, Isaac? We went to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. If I could go back there again in a heartbeat, I would go. It was the best thing. Every day, we would, we'd go down to the beach, and we would just enjoy the water. It was absolutely gorgeous until the, our last two days. Uh, the second to last day, it was windy. And so we were getting sand blasted uh, by all these fine grains of sand, just kind of making pockmarks on your face, and everything was covered because you're, you're covered with, you know, suntan lotion. And on top of that, your suntan lotion plus sand. And it just gets nasty and grimy. But that's not where the major problem was. The major problem is that this strong wind was doing something to the water. It was creating an ever so subtle undertow, right? Stuff that you don't even see going on. But I'll tell you, the waves were great. And the kids loved playing in the waves. And there was a time where all of a sudden we notice our kids were drifting away from us. And they did not even notice it. They were having a blast out there. And having an experience from a few years ago about dealing with a, a student at Camp Manitoba who, who drowned in an undertow, my, heart's, my wife's heart started beating a little bit faster because these were even closer and more precious to us. And she goes, Paul, I'm getting scared. And I'm going, so am I. And so what, what did I do? Grace, Isaac, you're out too far. Come closer. And all of a sudden they realized that they were a good 25, 
to 30 yards away from us. And what did they do? They came in. They came in. It didn't take long for them to discover that on their little body boards had helped them drift and move away into dangerous territory. And the reality is, some of you are like that today. It's not that you've ultimately denied Christ in any way. It's that you have drifted from your spiritual confidence in Christ. Right? Think about it. It's every one of us. It's so subtle. And it's so dangerous. But suddenly we find ourselves drifting from confidence in Christ. Maybe it's led to some very serious mistakes. Maybe it's dabbling in thoughts or, or actions today that you say, what was or what am I thinking? I want you to heed the call of God on your life today. And when you hear the call, come back. Come back. Don't come back to church. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. I want you to watch out. And I want you to think about your thinking. I want you to return to the sufficiency of Christ. Amen? And friends, we're going to wrap it up and we're going to move into the Lord's Supper. But I, I want to extend this offer. Personally, and for the elders' sake, deacons or anybody else in this church, if you find yourself having wandered, that you've bought into other things, I want to encourage you, be honest. Just say, hey, I'm, I've shifted my confidence is in this, this, and this. And I found my confidence not so much in Christ. I need help. Ask an elder. Ask a spiritual friend, brother, or sister in Christ. And we will walk with you. We want to see you return to the sufficiency of Christ in all things. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are sufficient in all things, that you are enough, that we need no other but Christ and him crucified. Lord, help us to empower us to think about our thinking. Help us to think much about you. Help us to trust in you for your work. Help us to lean on brothers and sisters in Christ who are pointing us back to Christ. And Lord, ultimately, build us up. Help us to be strong. Help us to be also a church that helps others find their way in Christ and find their strength in Christ and Christ alone. Guard our hearts from making idols and sacred cows of, of ministries and methodologies. But Lord, may you be our sole focus.
This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.